Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. So we're kicking off tonight with our series on the spiritual realm and we're going to do part one the original rebel makes sense to start there not that we want to focus on him but that's where scripture starts as well so it makes sense if we start there as well and i want to say tonight that you know there's a couple of options when it comes to this so i want to make an apology kind of from the beginning that at the end of tonight i'm going to leave you guys a bit in the air you know, with a bit of a what now, okay, how does this play out, what does this mean, type of setting. I'll explain it a little bit at the end for us, but we have two options. We can either sit here until next week's morning service start, if you want to make sense of it all, or I can run through it very fast. And that's the problem that we tend to make when it comes to spiritual things. We tend to run over it quickly, and we don't understand it as we should. We don't look at scripture as we should, and then for we get passages of scripture that we quickly run over we try to draw a doctrine out of that and that just simply is the way that we look at things now we don't want to do that we want to go through it slowly we want to go through it holistically we want to allow scripture to interpret scripture you know in even in our our studies as well it's something that we tend to do we have all of these doctrines about a lot of things and then all of a sudden someone rem remembers hey oh we should actually say something about angels and demons maybe so let's just throw a quick week or two's reading in there as well about that and then we can go on with our lives and we tend to do that and another thing and we have to be aware of this we don't like the spiritual realm that much we're in the western world the intellectual world we don't like it that much we would rather, when we come to a passage that means something, we would rather want to interpret the supernatural out of it. If, it, if, it, if I can get away for this to mean that it wasn't something supernatural, then I'll rather accept that. Because it doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand it. And some people are a bit fearful of it. That is just the way the spiritual realm works. But we'll see that Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. Scripture interprets scripture the best commentary on the bible is the bible if you want to know what one passage means simply go to another one that speaks about the same things but we have to be aware of that and we have to see it what it is and we'll, we'll look at an example of that just now and another thing that we also have to be a bit aware of is that certain people have a mentality or maybe you've said it before maybe you've heard it said that if we leave it alone, meaning the supernatural stuff, it will leave us alone. I don't know if you've heard that. But again, the text of Scripture doesn't conform to that. We don't have that choice. You know, it's not some kind of wild dogs in someone's yard that we're not allowed to go into. It's not how it works. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey guys, by the way, there's this area, there's a lot of demons and stuff, don't go there. But if you remain here, it will leave you alone. No doesn't say that scripture doesn't conform to that you see but what it does say if, if we are not in Christ these supernatural entities actually have a hold on our lives they are busy leading us it's not something strange to us we're reading in Ephesians 2 you were dead in your sins in the trespasses in which you once walked the spirit of the power of the air was working in you the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience something that we understand 
It's not something foreign to grasp. We read in 1 John 5 verse 19 that we are the Lord's, but the world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the God of this world. Jesus says in John 12 that the ruler of this world is about to be cast out. That is the devil, something that we understand. And when we are in Christ, he's actively fighting against us. Be aware, your enemy, right into the church, is walking around seeking someone to devour. Be aware, be sober-minded. We don't have a choice. It's simply how it works. And again, when it comes to the concept of deliverance, like Garma also spoke of, it's strange for us to admit, and we don't like to admit it. But some way, the devil had a hold on us, or maybe has a hold on us. We don't like to admit that. It's a foreign concept to us. We don't like it. But we see the same in Jesus' day. In John 8, Jesus rocks up and he tells the Jews, Hey, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness. For who the sun sets free, he will be free indeed. What did the Jews say? How do you mean set us free? We've never been enslaved. And by the way, they're thinking spiritually here, because at that same moment they are being oppressed by Rome and they have been enslaved many times by other nations. And Jesus makes it very clear with strong language, a little bit late in that same chapter. You are sons of your father, the devil. Very strong language. But you need to be set free, even though you think you're sons of Abraham, even though you think you need no deliverance, you are in need of deliverance. But before we jump in, there's something that we have to say to ourselves. Whenever we engage with the spiritual realm, whenever we explore these things, we have to arrive at the same conclusion that Jesus did. We have to arrive at the same action point that Jesus did, and that is to go and make disciples of nations. That is to pray for one another. That is to stir one another to love and good works. If we arrive at something else, we are missing the point. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey guys, there's the supernatural world and there's the natural world. I'm going to create some disciples. They'll go make disciples of the nations. They'll pray for one another, stir one another to love and good works. They'll build the kingdom. They'll come together as a church. And then there'll be these weird supernatural guys that go, go out and yell at demons. No, no, no. It's not how it works. Whenever we arrive at some different conclusion, we are missing the point. It has to tie in with go and make disciples of the nations. It has to tie in with pray for one another. It has to tie in with confess your sins to one another. It has to tie in with stir one another to love and good works. Otherwise, we are missing the point. It's just a distraction. Another thing that we have to also agree on, the scriptures wasn't written for, you know, highly intellectual people that studied the art of interpretation. Scripture simply means what it says. So whenever we dive into these things and we need to do a lot of tricks with scripture for the meaning to mean something, again, we are missing the point. It has to be normally just as the text says it. We don't need to do fancy stuff to come out on a different conclusion. There isn't these two ways of thinking, the one is the natural way of thinking, the one the supernatural way. No. Scripture simply says what it says. And I want to quickly show us an example before we dive in, and I want to say to us tonight, um, hold on to your boxes because it might be a little bit shaken tonight. The things that we might think about the supernatural world, what you know, might not be so. It might be a little bit different. And again, we need to receive it with humility. We don't like it to be wrong, right, guys? I mean, nobody loves it to be wrong. Nobody likes it when they hear, hey, this thing that you've been thinking, it's wrong. 
specifically when it comes to the area of faith. We don't like it. But scripture says, receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with humility. But let's explore it and allow scripture to influence the way we look at the natural world and also at the supernatural world. So I'm going to quickly give us an example that people like to interpret the supernatural out of it. They say, no, it can't mean this. And then we'll just look in light of scripture why it does actually mean exactly what it says. So first example, Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4. We read the following. This is just before the flood. Same context in Noah's days. And we read, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any of those they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, the giants. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Interesting passage of scripture. Now this is the first one we get. In light of everything that's happening here, and that passage of the first that says, and also afterwards, we really like to interpret the supernatural out of this. Let's get that out of here. Because this is strange. We don't like this at all. And so there's three ways in which this scripture is interpreted. The supernatural view being the least held view. That's the third one. So the first one is to say, okay, the sons of God means the descendants of Seth, the third born of Adam. There was Cain and Abel, Abel obviously being the, the better one, but unfortunately Cain killed him. Then they came Seth. So Seth is, is, is the sons of God. His descendants is the godly offspring. The sons of man, that's Cain's offspring. So what happened here is the descendants of Seth married the descendants of Cain, and then for some other reason we got giants. Don't know how that works. And again, also afterwards, I don't know where they hid in the ark, but God didn't notice that. He thought they were wiped out. You guys with me? It's silly we laugh, but we, we want to do this with scripture. We want to get the supernatural out of here. The second is, it's Lamech's descendants. Who have you read about Lamech? The vicious guy got all the wives and all of the descendants. So it must be Lamech and maybe, maybe he was demon possessed. Maybe. And then we got giants as well. The third view is to read it as the text actually says it. Sons of God. These are angels. These are heavenly beings. Angels are just actually a function, messenger. Heavenly beings, a better name. The third view. This Maybe it's heavenly beings. So what do we do? We do not allow a single passage of scripture to interpret the rest of our worldview. Now, there's more than 3,000 verses in the Bible, so if you draw it like a triangle, and there's one little verse on top, we don't allow that to dictate what the rest says. We turn the triangle upside down. Allow all of Scripture to press down on this one text, this one topic, and then in light of that, let's see what it means. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, is there another instance in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where this phrase, the sons of God, appear? Do they speak about the sons of God again? Because that will give us a little bit indication of what's being said here. Secondly, this event that's being described here, is it also mentioned again in the Bible? Because obviously that will cast some light. 
on what is being said? The answer to both, yes. We read about the sons of God again. And one of those instances is in Job 1, verse 6 to 7. It says the following. Oh, this is still the Afrikaans one. I forgot to translate it. The Job 1, to 1 verse 6 to 7 says the following. It is still shucks. Sorry, guys. In op dag, to the scenes van God, hulle voor die Heere stel, die Satan ook onder hulle gekom. This is this morning's slide. But it says, And on a day the sons of God presented them before the Lord. And behold, Satan also showed up. And God says to him, Hey, where, where do you come from? And he says, I came from going to and fro the earth. So obviously this instance, when it speaks again about the sons of God, does not refer to humankind. They are not even on the earth. They are somewhere else. So that is what this passage of scripture tells us about the sons of God. Now secondly, we have to ask ourselves, okay, does what happened there appear elsewhere in scripture? Yes, it does. It appears in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, and it appears in the book of Jude. So let's see what those two chapters have to say about this. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 to 5 says the following, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and that word hell is not the hell we're going to one day if we don't believe, that is the word Tartarus in the Greek, it's somewhere else where they are held captive, but cast them into Tartarus hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought up the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here it says angels sinned, and here it says he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. So what, what were they sin? What does the Bible say about that? Here we read in the book of Jude, chapter 1, only has one chapter, verses 6 and 7. And it says the following, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment day, the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, like these angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So they tells us what they did. You see, we read this story about Abraham by the oaks of Mamre and the angel of God and the angels appearing to him. And then he says, hey, where are you going? No, we're going to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to destroy the city. Anyone familiar with the story? And they go then, when the angels arrive, what do the guys in Sodom and Gomorrah say? Bring out the angels so that we might have sex with them. This is the Bible, guys, by the way. It's not some other book. They want to have sex with them. So in light of scripture, interpreting scripture, it says exactly what it means. It's heavenly beings. That's where the giants came from. And that's where we don't like this verse because it says they show up again. Where do they show up again? Numbers 13, like Garmo said. When the spies go out to spy the land, they come back and they say, hey, the Nephilim, the big guys, they, they, they here again. We don't want to go in there. We, we're scared of them. And again, interpreters like to say, you know, we seemed like, like um, grasshoppers in their sight. That's what the spies reply. And again, interpreters like to say, no, no, they're just over-exaggerating. What they mean is, it was the grandparents of Eben Ezebet and Lode Jager. They lived there. These are just big guys. 
And from that nation, all the locks of the rugby world descended. No. It's not what it says. We have to read scripture like it is. We don't need to do funny things with it. We just have to read it as it is. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. So now again to shake the box maybe a little bit further. Scripture tells us that these specific angels who fell, they are being held in chains till the judgment day. They are taken captive. God is keeping them somewhere. So if they are in chains, who is running the show right now? When did they fall? Where did they come from? Because all of them aren't bound. Scripture makes that very clear. You see, sometimes we have this perception that there was an original fall of Satan and angels, and that just settled it. That's not what Scripture says. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that that happened that way. Something that we like to believe, something that tradition has taught us, but it doesn't conform to the text of Scripture. It doesn't say that. You see, we are, here we at least have two rebellions that happened. The Satan in the garden, and we'll get to that now in Genesis 6. These sons of God that came into the woman of men. And they are kept in chains of darkness. So then there had to be another rebellion. There had to be a, another fall. Because, you know, we as humans, we're in a particular situation. Our original parents, where all of us descended from, they sinned. Sin entered the human world and every single human being that was born was born with sin. And we were in need of salvation from the day that we got born. Not so, the heavenly world. Yeah, they didn't have three pairs of parents and one third of them had sin and therefore they spawned all of these sinful angels and the other two, they were just good. That's not what scripture says. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So let's start at the beginning. Let's just park this here. We'll get back to this in the next couple of weeks. But let's just ask the question, okay, where do they come from? When we were these heavenly beings created? Let's start there. Job 3, 8, verse 4 to 7. And God asked Job the question, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. So the morning stars, they're also showing to heavenly beings. Doesn't mean the stars that were created. It's a theme that's many times used of the heavenly being. So here we see that when the foundations of the earth were laid, they already existed. Job says this. We're not reading some made-up book that's apart from the Bible. This is scripture. Genesis says in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you want to interpret that, they firstly created the heavens and the heavenly beings and then the earth. Either way. But scripture tells us that they were here before. The earth was created. When God laid the foundations of the earth, the sons of God shouted for joy. They were here. But this doesn't mean that they are eternal. They were also created, just to make that clear. They don't share the attributes that God shares. He's the only one that is eternal. That's omniscient, omnipresent, and almighty. No other heavenly being shares that attributes. And also, by the way, when we look at its future tense, we all are eternal now. You know, the, the world says YOLO, you only live once. What do we say? YOLF, you only live forever. Doesn't sound that great, but it's what scripture says. But destination, destination, guys, that's what it's about. Where will you be for eternity? 
Yolf. Are we going to print some t-shirts, Estelle? <laughs> Yolf. You only live forever, but where you live, that, that is the key thing. That is the indicator. That is what we should focus on. But when we look back, past tense, only God is eternal. Only God existed forever. Only God has never been created. He simply is. Like God says to Moses, I am the all-sufficient one. There is no beginning, no end. That existed before time. That is God. So now we also have to ask ourselves the question, when did the first rebellion happen? When did sin enter into the world? How did the first angel fall? How did these things happen? So we read in Genesis 1 verse 31 and Genesis 2 verse 1, we read the following. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Then verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So here we see at this part of creation when God looks at everything, the heavens, the earth and all the host of them, like one translation would say, the heavens and everything in them and the earth and everything on it. Created and God sees it is good. Sin hasn't entered yet, death hasn't entered yet, no rebellion has happened, everything is still good. Everything is good. Death hasn't entered. That's the seventh day and God makes it holy and he rests. From his creation. Now somewhere between here and Genesis 3, the devil gets an idea and begins to act on it. And we all know the story. In the garden, the temptation, the sin of man, how it entered and what happened. But the question we need to ask ourselves, and again not just take tradition and accept it, but we need to ask the question and then look at scripture to see what the answer is. Why is the devil there? Why is he in the garden? And secondly, has he already fallen or is he busy falling? We have to ask those questions. We cannot simply assume. Because there's one belief that many of us hold, and that is that he already fell, that's why he was there, he was cast to the ground, and a third of the angels fell with him. But we'll get to that in a moment. That's Revelation 12. It doesn't speak about the garden. And if you want to derive theology from a text, it it's good to read the whole chapter. Just principle. So Revelation 12 doesn't speak about the beginning. It speaks about the birth of Jesus Christ. It speaks about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Very interesting fact. So we know the story. Eve's in the garden. Here comes the devil. The, the serpent, Nachash, as the Hebrew word would say. Later identified by the New Testament as the devil, the ancient serpent of old. Again, Revelation 12. So it makes that connection. And he appears there and he asks these questions, you know, did God really say if you eat of the tree, you will not die? The woman explains to them, no, he may eat of any tree, not just, just not that tree. Temptation happens, Eve eats, Adam eats, and God comes and he calls Adam. Adam says, no, it wasn't me, it was my wife. All of the men go, yes, we know that. Makes sense to us. It was my wife. The wife says, no, it wasn't me, it was the snake. And now here's where we have to pay attention. Because here is the first time God curses the devil. It hasn't happened before this. No indication given. This is the first time. God doesn't go, ah, you again. Hmm? Are you with me? Scripture says what Scripture says. Never does it say he fell before that. Nowhere. Nowhere in Scripture. The first time God curses him, 
From your belly you will go, and the dust of the earth you will eat. And I will put enmity. The first time enmity is placed between God and the serpent. This is where they became enemies. The descendant of the woman, he will crush your head, speaking about Jesus, and you will bruise his feet. Obviously, if you rebelled against God before that, God wasn't just going to let that go. He wasn't going to say, hey, you rebelled against me, that's fine. You just do whatever you did. Oh, hey, here you are again. Now you deceived man. Okay, now I'm going to punish you. No. God's holiness would demand that he punish those who rebel against him. But this is the first time God curses the devil. This is when he fell. This is what happens. And now we have to ask the question, we'll get to just why it doesn't make sense that he fell before in just a moment. Or, or just to ask it to us. Maybe it makes sense and then don't leave it in, then we can go on. Why it doesn't make sense that the devil befell before that? And again, like Revelation 12 says, there were no longer a place for him in heaven. We'll get to that just now. A war rose, Michael and his angels fighting between the dragon and his angels, the devil, the serpent, the ancient serpent. They fought and they were cast out of heaven and there were no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, if the devil was before Genesis 3 cast out of heaven, how does Job 1 happen? Why, why does he appear in the heavens before the sons of God again? How does it happen? Why does Revelation 3 says that the devil accuses the saints day and night before the throne of God? How does that happen if he's cast out of heaven? Just logically, when we apply it to the rest of Scripture, it does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. It speaks about the ministry of Jesus, Revelation 12. But now to ask ourselves, okay, but what is he doing in the garden? Why is he there? And firstly, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm was never created to function apart from one another. God longed for them to work together and to steward God's creation together and to rule over the world together. Maybe that wasn't the idea that the devil didn't like so much. Now Hebrews 1.14 says, angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who would inherit salvation. Maybe he thought, no, this idea that he was to minister to someone lower than him, he doesn't like the idea. But if it might have been. You know, it was pride and we'll get to that just now. Because scripture says he made us just a little bit lower than the angels. And he rebelled and caused them. But what, what does he specifically do there? So what is the garden? We many times think of the garden as just a garden, but it's not quite like my garden or your garden. Something a little bit different. See, this is where God met with man. This is where God appeared to man. This is where the presence of God dwelt. So it's a prototype or an archetype for a temple. Again, it makes sense to us. When we look at the whole of the, New, uh, the Old Testament, where does God meet with man? The temple. Even the nations around Israel, they have the exact same idea. Wherever God meets with man, that is a temple. And we'll get to other, the, the other nations in a couple of weeks. But they meet with him in the temple. And now whenever we're speaking about the temple or the presence of God or the throne of God, there's a specific type of heavenly being that is associated with the throne of God. Specific type of angel that is associated with the presence of God. That is the cherubim. Cherubim, plural, cherub, singular. But it always appears whenever the throne of God or the presence of God is mentioned. Let me just give us a couple of examples. Isaiah 37 verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Psalm 99 verse 1. 
The Lord reigns, the people tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Exodus 25 verse 22. God saying to Moses, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seats, from above between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. You know, God said to them that they must build these golden statues of these winged angels above the mercy seat. There where God meets with Moses. He says, I want to give you a little bit of an idea of what's happening in the spiritual realm. The cherubim, you can see it physically, but this is what's going on spiritually. In Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel sees the vision of God, he sees the cherubim. These four angels with their wings held out in perfect symmetry. They have four faces, man showing towards the presence of God. Why? Because man was made for the presence of God. The crowning of God's creation, mankind looking towards God. Then there's an ox, the king of the working type animal, eagle, king of the air, lion, king of the wild beasts. And whenever you look to the throne of God from any direction, you see those four faces, the cherubim. And even the nations around them understood this principle as well. You know, build this cherubim type animal looking winged creatures that covered the temple. Guardians of the presence of God, guardians of the throne of God. In Revelations 4, the scene that we so well know about this scene in heaven where worship is being expressed at the throne of God. What do we see? The cherubim. Always associated with the presence of God. Now there is one cherubim, cherub, that we know in scripture. Or that at least gets depicted as someone or something who wants to guess who that is. Look at what we read in Ezekiel 28, 12 to 17. And again on Isaiah 14, you can go and read that as well. But Ezekiel is addressing the king of Tyre two times in this passage. In the first part of the passage, it's clear that he's speaking to the king, the, the man king of Tyre, the human king. Because regardless of who controls you, you are still responsible for what you do. And again, then secondly, he turns to the other king that is behind the human king. And again, this is not a foreign concept to us. Again, Jesus says it, Paul says it, John says it. Satan is the god of this world. He's controlling the nations. And we'll get to why that happened also in a couple of weeks. But in the second half of Ezekiel, he turns to someone else. And again, very simple. We just read scripture at face value and see what it says. I don't need to explain to you why it says what it says. You'll be able to see it for yourself. So let's read through it. Son of man, raise a lamentation of the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. There were just three, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. So he's speaking about one of them. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardias, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your setting and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Don't think he's speaking about Eve or Adam anymore. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless until your ways, uh, in all your ways, from the day that you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. 
Your heart was, pro- was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Again, I don't need to do funny stuff with scripture to show you why it says what it says. We all can just simply see for ourselves. You were a guardian cherub. Well, that anointed word might mean with wings spread out. With wings spread out, a guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created. Not speaking about man. Man wasn't blameless. We are born in sin. Till unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud. Proverbs says, Pride comes before the fall. Not speaking about Genesis. I'm not trying to make that connection. But pride comes before the fall. And God says he hates the proud. God opposes the proud. He's actively hostile towards the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And again, in Isaiah 14, you can go and read that for yourself. I'm not going to give you the verse verse, so that I don't influence you. You can go and see it for yourself. It says, a morning star, how you've fallen from heaven. You who laid the nations low, verse 14, you who said you will make yourself equal with the Most High. Again, easy for us to draw that connection. We don't need to do funny things with Scripture to allow it to mean something that we want to. We can simply take it at face value. Now, it's here many times, and and we're almost done, so this is why I'm saying I'm going to kind of leave us in the air here, Uh, which makes sense because we're busy with the spiritual world. Um, They're also in the air and stuff. But this is normally, again, we... Where we get the idea, okay, Satan fell. This was before Genesis 3 with a third of the angels. And that just settles it. But we see again, Genesis 6, not quite how it works. It's not limited to exactly that. And the rest of the text of Scripture doesn't make sense then. And just to quickly, maybe just draw a little conclusion for us before we just leave it here hanging in the air. What Revelation 12 speaks about, but you can go and read that and we'll also visit that in a couple of weeks from now. It speaks about the birth of the Messiah. It says, you know, two signs appeared in heaven. This woman with 12 crowns that is about to give birth in the agony of childbirth. And then there appeared the dragon who wanted to devour the child, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That is Jesus. And he says, but he couldn't do that because the male child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Then war arose. Then Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels. And he was cast down. And the beautiful thing that scripture says is rejoice, O heavens, for the one that accuses us before God has been cast down. Why? He has no right to accuse us anymore. Because we have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Because I am in Christ, he can accuse me no more. Because I'm in Christ, he has no claim, he has no hold on me. We read in Hebrews. Chapter 2, that Jesus became flesh like we are flesh and he died for us so that we can be set free from the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That is not my words that I added in the end. This is the exact verse of Hebrews 2, verse 4. That is what it says. Oh, verse 14, sorry. To deliver us from that. To set free those who in fear of death were in lifelong slavery. He has no hold on me anymore. And again, we'll draw that correlation a little bit better in two weeks. The God of this world, the devil, that I claim over the nations. Then Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do what? Go make disciples of the nations. Go claim back the nations. Go call them from darkness to light. But the devil has no hold on them 
anymore. The power that is at work in them, they do not, do not need to yield and submit to that. He can accuse us no more because we are washed by the blood of the Lamb. And we have conquered him by the word of our testimony. And then Revelation 12 goes on to say, when he could not kill the woman, when he could not harm the woman, he turned his vision to the offspring. It says, rejoice, O heavens, but woe to you, O earth. Be careful, because the devil has come down with great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And he's actively facing who? Those who carry the commands of God and all to the testimony of Christ. That is who he's fighting against. But in light of this, I just want to finish off for us with two passages of Scripture. Because we at least have to ask, you know, why is he here? Colossians 1, verse 16 to 17, says the following. For by him, speaking about Jesus, the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things altogether. All things were created through him and for him. Even the devil and his angels created through him and for him. They are serving the purposes of God whether they want to or not. The, the devil isn't running around rampant, causing chaos and destruction, and God has no hold on him. That is simply not what Scripture says. Because many people would like to say, hey, it's a little bit rough out there. Who, who agrees with me? It is a little bit rough out there. It's a little bit weird. Who's actually in control? Who's the one that said it would look exactly as it is? God. Who is the one that said lawlessness will abound because the love of many will grow cold? God. Who's the one in light of that that says stir one another to love and good works? God. Nothing is outside of his control. The devil cannot do what God does not want to do or does not allow him to do. We see this again in Job. God puts the boundary down. You can harm him, you can take stuff away, but yeah, I draw the line. You can go to yeah, no further. To yeah, no further. Same thing with Peter in Luke 22, verse 31. You can go and read that. What does Jesus say to Peter? Satan has asked that he might shift you like wheat. You plural, speaking about the disciples. That he might shift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may be upheld. And when you return, so the Afrikaans will say, wanneer jy weer bekeer, you may strengthen your brothers. He's going to hit me, the sheep are going to scatter, you're going to deny me three times. Satan has asked for this, but I've drawn the line in the sand, you will return, your faith will be upheld, and you will strengthen the brothers once again. Till here and no further. And now we have to ask a couple of questions. If you leave here with more questions tonight than answers, that's also okay. It's fine, it's good to ask questions. It's good to ask questions. Who of you have heard about the story of the elephant's child? It's not in the Bible, by the way. About how the elephant got his long nose. He asked, what does the crocodile eat for breakfast? And everyone he asked, they spanked him. But he was curious, and so he went in anyway. And the crocodile bite him in his little nose, stretched it, so it became a long one. And then he had a lack of long nose where he could give everybody puck that spanked him. But at the end of that story, there's a little poem that the guy writes, and he says, I have six honest serving men, they taught me all I know. Their names are who and when and where, what and how and why. I send them over land and seas, I send them east and west, but after they have worked for me, I give them a rest. 
Then it continues. There's one lady that asked too many questions. But it's good to ask questions. That's the point that I wanted to make. Sorry. It's good. I went on a little rabbit tail there. It's good to ask questions about Scripture. Always ask the right questions. But let me prompt some new ones for us tonight. When I ask you the question, is sin in the will of God or not? The immediate response we want to say is no. But what was the greatest sin ever committed? The innocent crucifixion of the Son of God. Man, it doesn't get worse than that. That is sin at its best. Was that in the will of God or not? He sent him for that reason. But God is not responsible for sin. Because who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Mankind and who? Jesus at the Passover, when Satan entered Judah, said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. Satan led Judas to hand over Jesus so that they led him to be crucified. You know what 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6 says? If the ruler of this world knew the plan of God, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory because he did not know that it would turn out to be his defeat. The disarming of the principalities and powers, triumphing over them in his death, casting him down from heaven so that he can no longer accuse us because the blood of God has washed us clean. See, again, it leads to the same conclusion. Don't go yell at a demon. Testify to your neighbor. That is spiritual warfare. Reclaiming the nations for God. Calling people from darkness to light. I want to end off us with this specific passage in Daniel 4. Very important for us to know. This is Nebuchadnezzar, a king of a different nation in the Old Testament that we know was under the sway of the evil one because scripture tells us that. Again, just showing the sovereignty of God. Daniel 4, verse 34 to 35, after a lot of stuff happened with Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I blessed the Most High. Why? Because he knows that there's other principalities and powers. They're well aware of the spiritual things working in their lives. But he says there's one that is Most High. God Most High. The Most High. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say to him, stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, Satan might be the God of this world, but Yahweh is the God of the God of this world. He is sovereign and he is in control. And we'll look at that a little bit more and explain it a little bit more as we go on with this series. But let's stand and pray together tonight. Sorry for keeping you a little bit longer, but it was necessary. Otherwise, we would have had a little bit more questions. Yes, Lord, thank you that we can come before you tonight, Lord, knowing that you are sovereign, Lord, you are in control. Like we read in Ephesians 1 verse 11, Lord, the God who works all things to the counsel of his will. All things. There is nothing outside of your control, Lord. And although it might not make sense to us at this moment, Lord, whenever we look at scripture, we also see, Lord, that there is no pointless evil. There is no pointless evil, Father, but you are working all things together to the counsel of your will. And in the end, Lord, it will give glory unto you, your grace, your majesty, your holiness will be great, Lord, in light of, even though it doesn't make sense now. 
And thank you, Lord, that we can come to Scripture, Lord. We don't need to do funny things with Lord. We can just read it as it is. Thank you for giving us knowledge, Lord, wisdom, insight. We don't need to wonder about anything. Thank you, Lord, that you said you give us the Spirit of God that we might freely know the things given us by God. And thank you, Lord, that you say in Scripture that you've given us all authority. And no power of the enemy will hurt us. But in light of this, Lord, may we have a greater sense of urgency, Lord, knowing, Father, that the devil knows his time is short. Sometimes we forgot, forget, Lord, that ours is as well. We're only here for a little while. Teach us to number our days. May me, we go, Lord, and proclaim the gospel to creation, Lord. And tell them, Lord, and some people experience a little bit different than others. The African traditional religions, Lord, to tell them, yes, you know that there's powers working. You've seen crazy stuff, but you don't need to fear them. For the most high, he has inherited the nations. Arise, of God, inherit the nations. May we go, Lord, and proclaim your gospel to call people from darkness to light. Also pray for endurance, Lord, for in this time as we look at the spiritual realm, that we not grow faint, Lord, but that we would endure, Father, that we would press through, that we would know, Father, what you want us to know. Thank you for your word, Lord, and thank you for your church. In Jesus' name, amen.